Welcome to World War I Centennial News, episode number 119. It's about then. What was happening a hundred years ago in the aftermath of World War I? And it's about now. How World War I is being remembered and commemorated, written about and discussed, learned and taught, but most of all, it's about why and how we'll never let those events fall back into the mists of obscurity. So join us as we explore the many facets of World War I, both then and now. This week on the show, we explore the headlines of the newspapers a hundred years ago in the fourth week of April. Mike Schuster takes us to Versailles in early May of 1919 as the Germans receive the Allied dictates. We're going to meet the 339th Regiment, known as the Polar Bears, with author James Carl Nelson. Dr. Edward Lengel continues his top 10 countdown of personal accounts from World War I. This week, British veteran Charles Carrington and his memoir, The Subaltern's War. In Commission News, coming up on 2019 Fleet Week in New York, we profile the May 2nd commemorative event at Cypress Hills National Cemetery in Brooklyn, and we're joined by Alain Dupuis, the president of the Federation of French War Veterans. For updates from the states, we'll speak with Susie Adler, a member of the Minnesota World War I Centennial Committee, who has created and continues to curate a Facebook page called Minnesotans Remembered. Then, for remembering veterans, we speak with the U.S. Navy History and Heritage Command and Marine Archaeologist Dr. Alexis Kasambis, exploring the USS San Diego sinking in World War I. All that and more this week on World War I Centennial News, which is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, the Starr Foundation, the Diana Davis Spencer Foundation, and the Richard Lounsbury Foundation. I'm Teo Mayer, the Chief Technologist for the Commission, and your host. Welcome to the show. This week, 100 years ago, the front page headlines are filled with the events at the Paris Peace Conference. A lot of it the continuation of the arguments back and forth about the key issues that we've laid out over the previous weeks. So we thought that we would zoom in on two fascinating facets related, but not at the top of the news. Two nations allied with us in World War I both clearly frustrated with their treatment in Paris, and both, 25 years later, allied with the Nazis in World War II. Now, with that as a setup, let's jump into our centennial time machine and go back 100 years ago this week to look at some of the headlines of the day. back in the third week of April 1919. Our first track is following a sequence of stories this week about the Italians. It starts on Monday, April 21st. As you may remember, there has been an ongoing controversy about Italian territory. Well, let's examine that. Think of the Italian boot. On the bottom and the toe side is the Mediterranean. 
On the back calf is the Adriatic Sea, and way up on the back of the thigh, keeping the boot analogy going, is Venice, and coming around to what is now modern Slovenia and Croatia is an area that was known as Fiume. It's a great port, and Italy claims she'd made a deal with the Allies early on in the war, and so as far as she's concerned, the territory is hers. But American President Woodrow Wilson, with one of his 14 points being no secret deals, only open transparent treaties, well, he digs in his heels opposing them. Headline, Wilson withdraws from the Fiume discussion. Other leaders try to solve the Adriatic difficulties. Foreign Minister Sonino especially insists on extreme demands on Adriatic, refuses to divide Fiume. Prime Minister Orlando is more conciliatory, but is spurred on by Army Chief's ultimatum. The feelings in Italy run high. Military general said to have ordered the withdrawal of all Americans in uniform. The very next day, on Tuesday, April 22nd, the discussion continues. Headline, Council of Four is deadlocked on Adriatic question. Italians stay out of session, but Wilson attends. Wilson attitude firm. He is irrevocably opposed to recognizing Treaty of London. Delegates back Wilson. President not attending morning session has long conference with them. And then on Wednesday... Headline, Italy shows a disposition to abate her Adriatic claims. Italy stands firm for Fiume, but may consent to give up Dalmatian hinterlands. Private parleys continue. Orlando arranges a meeting with Lloyd George to seek plan of adjustment. By Thursday, April 24, 1919, things are getting pretty testy. Headline, Italy's delegation quits conference today after Wilson's refusal to give her Fiume. President's appeal fails to conciliate her. Italians decide to quit. So announced, after meeting held to consider Wilson's statement, surprised by Wilson's act. Italian Premier says he was about to make a supreme effort to settle the matter. He will appeal to the Italian people and let them make the decision. And so, by Friday, April 25th, Italian Prime Minister Orlando heads for home with his people in agreement. Headline, Orlando leaving Paris as last efforts fail, resents the president's public appeal. Italy united in support of her ministers. Orlando makes protest, accuses the president of a breach of diplomatic usage says purpose was to appeal to the Italian people against the government. Orlando refuses to stay, has two-hour discussion with Wilson and other premiers. Questions of Italy's prestige, apparently the chief subject of the conference. Talk of occupying Fiume. Italian attaché says Dalmatians may also be seized by military force. Now that sounds to me like a really steamed-up delegation. Okay, let's roll back to the top of the week. Our second track has a number of parallels. This time, the country who also winds up fighting against the Allies in World War II is Japan. 
Here's a little story that shows up on Saturday, April 19th. Headline, Story of Japanese Deal with Berlin China sends to Paris news of a treaty circulated by the Bolsheviks. Plan of alliance is in it, proposing that the two nations unite against Britain and the United States. Wow, okay. Then on Tuesday, April 22nd, rolling across the top headlines in the New York Times. Headline, Entente's secret pledges to Japan are made public. Japan's case like Italy's. Secret agreements were made with the Allies in February 1917. Signed by four powers, England, France, Italy, and Russia engaged. How Wilson learned of it? His inquiry about Pacific mandates caused awkward situation in Council of Ten. Well, that explains a lot, but let's read a little more. No delegation outside those of the powers directly concerned is more interested in the outcome of the Adriatic controversy than the Chinese. For there is a point of curious similarity between the quarrel of Italy and Yugoslavia and that of China and Japan over the Chinese province of Shantung. There's also this difference. Italy is struggling to get a debatable territory promised her by England and France as an inducement to enter the war. Japan based her case on secret agreements made by England, France, Italy, and Russia in February of 1917 that they would support Japan's claim to the German Pacific Islands north of the equator and the Chinese territory of Shantung from which Germany had been ousted. Evidence of these promises given to Japan is contained in hitherto unpublished diplomatic notes which are part of a cable dispatched. Neither President Wilson nor the Chinese delegates knew of the existence of these secret agreements when they came to Paris. The disclosure was first made to Mr. Wilson at a meeting of the Council of Ten. And finally, on Wednesday the 23rd, two headlines that set the controversy and the positions. Headline, Japan position in China not to be dealt with now. And in a second headline, Japan stands on secret treaties, asks her allies what they're going to do in view of the agreement on Shantung, urges special interests, declares her domination of the Chinese province justified by a sort of Monroe Doctrine. And so go two of the stories, a hundred years ago this week, involving two allied nations who clearly do not feel the love in Paris this springtime, in the aftermath of one world war and as a precursor to another. With that, we're joined by Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog. Mike, your post this week is a direct follow-up to last week, as in early May 1919, the Germans are called to Versailles to receive and respond to the peace treaty. It's not a very happy story, is it, Mike? Not at all a happy story, Theo. The headline reads, An undiplomatic German performance. French appetite for revenge still in charge. Germans lose confidence in Wilson. Such a scoundrel. And it's special to the Great War Project. The shock of the draft treaty deepens. So writes historian Thomas Fleming. On the afternoon of May 7th a century ago, the German foreign minister and other German dignitaries are ushered into one of the immense royal palaces of the French kings. 
The Germans sit across from the big three, Clemenceau, Lloyd George, and President Wilson. The press reports that the Germans are seated at the table of the accused. Clemenceau rises and begins by saying that this was not the time nor the place for superfluous words. He spat out a venomous speech, Fleming reports. Addressing the Germans directly, he says the hour has struck for the weighty settlement of your account. The French appetite for revenge, Fleming concludes, is still in charge. The Germans registered shock and disbelief, reports Fleming. Clemenceau is telling them there will be no face-to-face negotiations. Then it was the German prime minister's turn. He did not stand to deliver his remarks. Some see this as a sign of disrespect, but others see he is terribly nervous and unable to stand. He begins by saying, we know the intensity of the hatred that meets us and the blame placed on them. The German leader confesses he can never agree. Such a confession that fastened blame for the war he could never accept. Such a confession in my mouth would be a lie. He tells his audience the continuing British blockade is killing hundreds of thousands of German non-combatants. Then he reminds them that they had offered peace on the basis of Wilson's 14 points. One British delegate dismisses these words as the most tactless speech he had ever heard. Clemenceau's face turned a bright red. Lloyd George grew so angry, he snapped an ivory letter opener in half. After reading the treaty all the way through, Wilson turns to one American delegate and confesses, if I were a German, I think I should never sign it. The Germans spend the night translating the full text of the treaty. By dawn, writes Fleming, they saw what confronted them. Along with the confession of guilt for the war were reparations that could be decided later which meant that Germany's economy would be at the mercy of the victors for as long as they pleased. Added to this, Fleming reports, are the loss of crucial coal fields to the Poles and the French, the separation of the Rhineland, the Saar, and Upper Silesia from what had been Germany, the loss of the port city of Danzig, now attached to Poland, the all but total destruction of their army and navy, and a demand that the Kaiser and an unspecified number of other leaders be surrendered for trial as war criminals. The terms, observes Fleming, drive one member of the German delegation, a socialist, to drink. In an alcoholic rage, he smashed glasses and shouts, I believed in Woodrow Wilson until today. I believed him an honest man. And now that scoundrel sends us such a treaty. And that's the news from the Great War Project these days, a century ago. Mike Schuster is the curator for the Great War Project blog. The link to this post is in the podcast notes. For remembering veterans, when people think World War I, they mostly think Western Front. They think November 11th, 1918 armistice. Fair enough. Maybe they think Middle East. But there was yet another fight going on that started mere months before the armistice and went on through the summer of 1920. America had 13,000 men in a cold and miserable fight up in northern Russia. From Archangel, that's a place up near Finland, across Siberia to Vladivostok, all the way east just north of what today's known as North Korea. Now That works out to be about 11 time zones away, all at or above the Arctic Circle. No wonder the men of the 339th Regiment were known as the Polar Bears. It's a pretty incredible and not widely told World War I story. And with us today is James Carl Nelson, the author of four books about the military experience in World War I, including 
The Polar Bear Expedition, the Heroes of America's Forgotten Invasion of Russia. James, I'm shivering just thinking about it. Welcome. Thank you very much. Now, James, I didn't really know much about this story. Could you start by giving our listeners an overview of this whole part of World War I, the red and the white armies, sort of the 10,000-foot view? As you mentioned, most people think of the Western Front and what was fighting in France between the British and the French and the Germans. But, you know, in actuality, the Russians had entered World War I in 1914 as well and was holding a front in the east, fighting Germans and Austro-Hungarians. And it was quite an active front. But in the late 1917, with the Russian Revolution, Vladimir Lenin took Russia out of the war, signed a separate peace with Germany, and that allowed Germany to transfer 80 divisions of men to the Western Front. And many of these divisions took part in a massive offensive that was launched March 21, 1918. By the early part of June, Germans were only 30 miles from Paris. The situation was perilous, and the high command was casting about for some way to relieve the pressure. And they came up with the idea of an intervention in northern Russia aimed at recreating the Eastern Front. They had this idea that if they landed some troops, got local support from anti-Bolsheviks, and reached out to this sort of ephemeral large body of men, about 40,000 to 50,000 Czechs, called the Czech Legion, who had been prisoners of war in Russia and were trying to make their way through Siberia to actually get back to France and fight on the Western Front. So they had this idea that they could do that, push into the interior, get this legion turned around, and thereby make the Germans at least stop bleeding their troops off the front or even make them return. So how did the 339th Regiment get this honor? <laughs> Who were they? President Woodrow Wilson had resisted the Allies' entreaties to join their little party in northern Russia. But finally, in mid-July 1918, he caved and decided he would send one regiment to northern Russia, proviso being that they only guard military stores that the Allies had sent to the Russian army during World War I. And so they selected the 339th, mainly men from Michigan. Part of the reason was coming from Michigan and knowing cold weather, they thought that they would be uh, hardier and be able to withstand the conditions, which were going to be brutal. We're talking 16 below temperatures. The commander, Colonel George Stewart, had spent several years serving the Army in Alaska, so he was inured to the cold. And by the time the decision was made and things started rolling, 339th was in London training, expecting to be sent to France, and instead found their way to Archangel in northern Russia. Now, they fought under British command, didn't they? What's the story? Yeah, the British were running the show. So what happened was, as soon as the 339th landed on September 5th, 1918, the British hauled them off their transports and put them right into action. There was no thought of just guarding stores. One battalion stayed in Archangel sort of service and supply, but the first and third were sent into the interior. The third went rolling southwards towards the Lagda along the railway line, and the first battalion was sent up the Davina River and just to the hinterlands, aiming to get to Kotlis, where they about 300 miles away, where they hoped to reach out to the Czechs. They found themselves in battle with the Bolsheviks very quickly. How many people did we lose during all this? The regiment, 235 men died. 70 of those were from influenza. Influenza had broken out on the ships while they were on their way to Russia. The rest were killed in action, died of wounds. There were some accidents. Maybe not super significant compared to some of the losses on the Western Front, but the fact that they were there at all was a travesty in some ways. Now, when these boys came home, was it to special recognition or was this act of heroism as unknown as the whole story? Well, I think locally, being from Michigan, they rolled into Detroit on the Vanguard on July 3rd, 1919. The local populace there celebrated them. They had a big Fourth of July event. 
of parade and speeches. So locally, it's known in Michigan, but this story is not really well known outside of Michigan. Like men, mainly of World War I in general, they kind of just drifted back into society, although they did create a polar bear association to commemorate themselves, their losses, their sacrifice. And in 1929, they sent a contingent back to Russia, gained entry, and were able to retrieve 86 bodies out of the 100 and some that had been left behind when they left Russia. Okay. James, how did you personally get onto this story? What made you decide to do the book? I have to be honest, it kind of came from my editor, Peter Hubbard, at HarperCollins. He saw a link to the Siberian end of this, contacted my agent, said, wow, this is a wild story. I wonder if there's a book in it. Jim sent it to me, Jim Hornfischer. And I looked into it, and I decided the Archangel end was doable, and there were characters that could be delineated. Were there any first-person accounts that popped up? Oh, yeah. The Bentley Historical Library in Ann Arbor, Michigan, has some great stuff. They've got diaries. From all the regiments I've studied, this one seems to have really documented its time because of the unusual circumstances. So there were diaries, letters, photographs, a lot of personal accounts, and plus three of them, when they came home, wrote books about it. That was pretty good resource material, too. When people dig into World War I stories, they always come up with unexpected gems. What do you think we should remember about the polar bears and their fight in northern Russia? I think if people had known about this when we were talking about getting into Vietnam, they might have thought twice. And just, I think they should celebrate what these men went through. Like I say, the temperatures, the conditions were cruel. A single company manning an outpost 250 miles from Archangel. Meanwhile, the gathering horde of Bolsheviks are ready to pounce on them, and which they did in January of 1919, and sent a lot of these men running for their lives towards Archangel. James, thank you for bringing us all this story. <laughs> I've got to go sit in the sun. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. James Carl Nelson, the author of The Polar Bear Expedition, The Heroes of America's Forgotten Invasion of Russia. You might also want to check out his third book, I Will Hold. The story of Marine Corps legend Clifton B. Kales, which won James the 2017 Colonel Joseph Alexander Award for Biography from the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation. We have links for you in the podcast notes. This week, regular contributor, historian Dr. Edward Lengel continues his new series of stories profiling his top 10 selections from the many, many hundreds of published personal accounts from World War I. This week... British veteran Charles Carrington and his memoir, A Subaltern's War. Ed's pick for Best War Memoir Number 8. By 1929, the literature of disillusionment had come to dominate the English-speaking world's perception of the Great War. Put simply, this narrative described how millions of naive, idealistic young men had gone off to fight on the Western Front, where the cruel realities of trench warfare had shattered their bodies and their spirits. Those who survived physically were morally broken, no longer believing in old principles like God and country. They were disillusioned, a generation lost, struggling to gather the pieces of their lives and survive as best they could. For many veterans, though, disillusionment was not just a lie, but a betrayal of their sacrifice. Though hardly celebrating the war, they believed, even a decade afterwards, that they had fought in a good cause. More than anything, they cherished the bonds of comradeship that they had built together in the trenches and in going over the top against artillery and machine gun fire. They felt changed, but not disillusioned, and in some ways believed that they had become better men than they were before. Some, like decorated British veteran Charles Carrington in his memoir A Subaltern's War, sought to set the record straight on what they thought the war had been all about. 
This book is number eight on my list of the 10 best personal accounts of World War I. Nobody could justly accuse Carrington of not having tasted war's bitterest dregs. Born in 1897 in Staffordshire, England, he abandoned his plans for university study when the war broke out in August 1914 and immediately sought to enter military service. Not until July 1916, however, did he see combat as a lieutenant in the 1-5th Battalion of the Royal Warwickshire Regiment. From then on, he experienced war to the fullest in brutal months-long trials such as the Battle of the Somme and the Battle of Passchendaele. Typical of the many encounters described in a subaltern's war is one of hand-to-hand combat as the Warwickshires fight off a German trench raid. As we moved forward, Carrington wrote, a sniper fired almost from behind us. I felt the bullet crack in my ear and Corporal Matthews, who was walking beside me, preoccupied and intent, fell dead in the twinkling of an eye. I was looking straight at him as the bullet struck him and was profoundly affected by the remembrance of his face though at the time I hardly thought of it. He was alive, and then he was dead, and there was nothing human left in him. He fell with a neat round hole in his forehead, and the back of his head blown out. Carrington, who was decorated repeatedly for bravery under fire, was transferred to a relatively quiet sector of the Italian front in 1918, where he spent the last several months of the war. Though experiencing severe symptoms of combat fatigue, he became unbearably restless, and sought desperately, as he put it, to be with the lads in the thick of the fighting. His requests were denied, and he passed time writing his memoir, poetry about the war, and comrades he had known and lost. Then came the armistice, but he and many others felt no joy. Life was pointless, he wrote, and very few soldiers were lucky enough to know in what direction their lives would tend. Millions of young men had known no other career, no other destiny than battle. Many of us were quite indifferent to the future. Carrington eventually went to Oxford and was well on the way to a successful academic career in 1929, when books such as Eric Maria Remarks All Quiet on the Western Front set the idea of disillusionment in full swing among the British public. Regarding Remarks' work as, quote, a bad book inflated into a bestseller by the arts of publicity, Carrington furiously rejected the suggestion that the sacrifices he and his comrades had made were pointless. Ending his memoir with an essay on militarism, Carrington concluded that fear is the worst of the horrors of war. Fear is that which degrades, which breeds cruelty, envy, and malice, and fear is the enemy in war. By contrast, he suggested, it is virtuous and not vicious to be indifferent to death, provided that you are as indifferent to your own as you are to your neighbors. To die young is by no means an unmitigated misfortune. To die gaily in the unselfish pursuit of what you believe to be a righteous cause is an enviable and not a premature end. Dr. Edward Langell's blog is called A Storyteller Hiking Through History, and it's filled with first-person perspectives and accounts that provide a nuanced insight into the era. We have links to Ed's post and his author's website in the podcast notes. Okay, time to fast forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now. During this part of the podcast, we explore how World War I is being remembered and commemorated, written about and discussed, and taught and learned today. 
Here's where we spotlight the surprisingly numerous and significant remembrances, honorings, and commemoration activities surrounding World War I and World War I themes. This week in Commission News, I'd like to profile an upcoming event that we touched on last week in our dispatch headlines. Kicking off our participation in the 2019 World War I theme for New York's Fleet Week, on Thursday, May 2nd, the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission will host a commemorative event at Cypress Hills National Cemetery in Brooklyn. There, we're going to take a moment to remember some World War I veterans resting at Cypress Hills. Those heroes specifically include Marine Sergeant Major Dan Daly, World War I hero and double recipient of the Medal of Honor. Navy Coxswain John Cooper, also a double recipient of the Medal of Honor and some international colleagues, specifically 21 World War I-era sailors from the French Navy and three World War I-era sailors of the Royal British Navy, all of whom passed away in New York during the World War I influenza pandemic, also called the Spanish Flu. Featured guests for this commemoration are going to include representatives from the United States Navy, the United States Marine Corps, the Consulate of France, the Consulate of the United Kingdom, and members of the New York City Mayor's Office of Veteran Affairs, among others. And we have a special guest with us today to tell us more about the French veterans who will be remembered and honored. Alain Dupuis is the president of the Federation of French War Veterans. Alain, welcome to the show. Thank you. Alain, before we get into the French soldiers who were interred at Cypress Hills, tell us a little bit about the Federation of French Veterans. They started in 1919 after the war. Those were the people living in the United States who came back from the front line or came back from the war. They started, they were about a thousand, then they reached like 3,000. And then after that, to succeed World War II. And now, unfortunately, we are about 20. But we participate in numerous ceremonies with the Americans and also to cemeteries in Flushing and Cypress Hill. We visit about twice a year around the Memorial Day and also around the November 1st. That we visit regularly to honor the American soldiers and of the two countries who since the Battle of Yorktown have defended and defended side by side common value and ideas. Well, the, the Franco-American comradeship is really long-standing, going all the way back to Lafayette and the Revolutionary War. So let's talk about history. When these French soldiers were lost to the pandemic, what were they doing in New York? They were part of different ships from the French Navy. One was called La Marseillaise, one La, La Gloire, and the other one the Montcalm. We're in New York Harbor waiting to escort merchant ships loaded with war supplies for Allies' victory. It was a dangerous mission because 6,596 civilian and military ships were sunk by 274 German U-boats. So they were in port at the time? They were in port at the time, yes. They oh. probably contacted the sickness in Europe before the departure. What do we know about these men in specific? Not much. I have the list of names which I am looking at. They have different specialities on the ship. They were all young, in the 18, 20, 25. And most of them were from Brittany, France. Yet we don't know much about how did it happen. Just they die here in New York, and uh, thanks to the Americans, they rest in this great federal cemetery where are buried the American heroes in the American Revolution. 
Well, most people think about the U.S. soldiers buried in cemeteries in France and are probably a bit surprised that some French soldiers are resting here. Alain, is there anything else we should know about this? This time, with what will happen uh, May 2, we try to have uh, many, many more people, hopefully. It does seem to be shaping up into quite an event on May 2nd. The interest and the participation is really growing and expanding. So, Alain, thank you for your support and thank you for joining us today. A pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Alain Dupuis is the president of the Federation of French War Veterans. We have links in the podcast notes about the event on May 2nd. And a note to our listeners in the New York area. This event is open to the public and the media. Next, for Remembering Veterans, we're going to explore the story of a ship that sank on the eastern seaboard in July of 1918. Now, first commissioned in 1907 as the USS California, the cruiser was rechristened the USS San Diego on September 1, 1914. Now, she spent most of her career as part of the Pacific Fleet before being reassigned to the Atlantic Fleet on July 18, 1917, where she escorted convoys on the first part of their journey to Europe. Although other ships like the Tampa were also lost in World War I, this event was shrouded in mystery and a lot of theories about why and how the San Diego went down. That is until last year. With us to talk about this is Dr. Alexis Katsambis, a maritime archaeologist with the Underwater Archaeology Branch of the U.S. Naval History and Heritage Command in Washington, D.C. Since 2008, Dr. Katsambis has provided for the stewardship, research, conservation, and curation of submerged U.S. Navy heritage sites, including the San Diego. Dr. Katsambis, thank you for joining us. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, let me start with underwater archaeology in general. How would you define the field and its challenges? So underwater archaeology uses scientific methods in an underwater environment to study and interpret the remains of the human past. Now, about the San Diego herself. What was the news at the time? What was she doing when she went down? Well, many Americans, when they think of the Great War, they envision the carnage of trench warfare and lands across the ocean. But the sea itself actually played a defining role in the outcome of the war. The Germans were able to sink through their U-boats several hundred merchant vessels and laid close to 45,000 mines or so. And they got very close to choking Britain off from critical surprise. That is until the United States entered the war in April 1917, and within a month or so, the first 14,000 troops had landed in France. A year later, in the summer of 1918, that number was closer to 10,000 uh, troops a day. And what made this incredible transfer of up to 2 million or so soldiers to France, combined with the British Royal Navy and the U.S. Navy, was the convoy system. The USS San Diego, having served in the Asiatic Station and the Pacific Fleet during the course of the war, was placed in the convoy system and, in fact, was making her way from New Hampshire, where she had just been resupplied with coal to make the, the crossing of the Atlantic, was making her way to New York. And then on a, a tragic day uh, on the 19th of July, 1918, a single explosion rocked her hull. And just over 20 minutes later, she had capsized on the surface and sunk. Okay, there were lives lost, but the loss of life was really limited, wasn't it? So there were over 1,100 men aboard San Diego. We've been able to find that the captain delayed issuing the abandoned ship order for about 10 or 11 minutes in order not to make a ship an easy target for any German submarine that surfaced and could capture it. And then within the span of three or four minutes, the ship had turned on its beams, essentially. 
the captain jumped off one side as the last man and had just been preceded by his executive order who jumped off the other side. And six men lost their lives in the attack and in the abandoning ship maneuvers that followed. That is a tremendous testament to the response, as well as the preparations of the crew of San Diego for the eventuality that they would receive an enemy attack. It really is. Now, when the archaeology project to study her was initiated, how was it conducted? How did it come about? So the Naval History and Heritage Command is responsible for the management of the Navy sunken military craft. That includes ships and aircraft from the American Revolution on to the current day. And the underwater archaeology branch specifically is responsible for researching, interpreting, and protecting these sites. The project with San Diego aimed to both document and assess the condition of the ship with its 100th anniversary of its sinking in view, determine if we could the cause and the circumstances of the vessel sinking. We wanted the project to serve as a training mission and the use of advanced data collection and analysis, and we wanted to commemorate through this project the Navy's role in World War I and, of course, the loss of the six men on San Diego. Now, you actually concluded some stuff. What led to the evidence that the ship had actually been sunk by enemy action? So there was generally an understanding that the ship had been sunk by the enemy, but it was unclear whether that had transpired through an act of sabotage, a torpedo, a mine. The single explosion was very effective, and we've concluded that that's actually because of the circumstances of the sinking itself rather than the size of the explosive. But it did not lead to a clear conclusion at the time as to what sank the ship. Over the decades that followed, a number of theories were posited. And ultimately, through this project, we've been able to conclude that an internal explosion in the form of a sabotage, for example, would have been deemed highly unlikely based on historical record and modeling of the explosion itself. We have engaged a number of partners in this effort, including the Naval Surface Warfare Center at Carterock, and they specialize in such modeling of impacts. And they also contributed to modeling of the flooding of the ship, which has given us further insight and really suggested that there's no evidence to support a torpedo attack either. And that's due to the size of the charge of a German torpedo at the time versus the size of a mine. And then to complement that, the historical record provides us with the types of mines that the German submarines would have used at the time. One, as potentially having been on board U-156, the particular German submarine we've come to conclude struck San Diego. That's really interesting. So it's not just really physical observation, but it's forensic record evidence that tells the story. So how has all this sleuthing allowed you to conclude specifically what happened? Are you satisfied or are there open questions? We are satisfied with the conclusion that a mine sank San Diego. Following the war, the U.S. Navy Hydrographic Office was able to identify which German submarines were operating off the Atlantic seaboard. In fact, the Navy sent a number of ships following the sinking to assess both what transpired and see whether there were other mines and threats to other vessels in the area. And we have eyewitness accounts of floating debris that we now can identify as a particular type of mine that was just newly introduced and not familiar yet to the American sailors. This is so interesting, unraveling a mystery. Now, for you personally, when you think back about this project, what are you going to remember the most? So this was a project that developed over a period of years. We were able to visit the site of San Diego four different occasions. Three of them were in partnership with the Mobile Diving and Salvage Unit. These are the Navy divers who have to perform qualification training for their diving credentials. And we offered them a particular objective, which was to assess the site of San Diego. One of those projects in September 2017 was in partnership with the University of Delaware. 
and collected advanced remote sensing data on the site. And then the final project in July 1918, on the day of the sinking 100 years earlier, we were able to lay a wreath on the site of San Diego and commemorate the loss of those sailors. And I think personally, that moment brought everything together and signified the intent behind the whole project. Technology for this kind of research must be evolving a lot. How much of a role does new tech play in being able to forensically unravel these mysteries? That's a great question. We've seen in the last decade or two a tremendous advancement in mapping capabilities underwater. For our purposes, that's wonderful because we're able to capture more data at a higher resolution and interpret these sites. There's an act called the Sunken Military Craft Act that puts in place some protections for Navy ship and aircraft wrecks that have been lost. And as we are able to access these sites more, it becomes even more important for us to be able to educate the public through the application of technology about the importance of respecting them. Many are war graves. Many carry oil or ordnance. Many are historically very important. And we want to document them as long as we can and, and to the best abilities we can. Okay, in summary, what should our listeners take away from the story? I think what's stuck in my mind from everything we've learned is just how incredibly these men prepared for and responded to this event. Great story. Thank you for joining us. A pleasure. Dr. Alexis Katsambas, a maritime archaeologist with the Underwater Archaeology Branch of the U.S. Naval History and Heritage Command in Washington, D.C., we have links in the podcast notes to learn more about the San Diego, her demise, and the study that revealed what happened. For updates from the States, let me set this up. As we came up on the centennial of World War I, the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission tried to identify, support, and when needed, help organize local state organizations that would focus on their state centennial commemoration. Now, these organizations really rocked it. They did an incredible job and created awareness, events, focus, state legislative initiatives, education, and a lot more in their states. Although some of the organizations have since disbanded, as we crossed the centennial of the armistice last year on November 11th, we really expected most of the state organizations to cease operation. To their credit, and to the great benefit of remembering World War I, many state World War I centennial organizations are not only still active, but as active as they've ever been. And even if the official organizations disbanded, the individuals who served on those committees and commissions have not stopped their activity. We want to use this section of the podcast to highlight and promote some of this exemplary work still going on especially since most of it is in the context of remembering those who served. Susie Adler is one such individual, a member of the Minnesota World War I Centennial Committee, who has created and continues to curate a Facebook group called Minnesotans Remembered. Now, Susie's here with us today to tell us about her project. Susie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. So, Susie, let me start by asking you, the World War I Centennial Committee, is it still officially operating? Well, we did not want to disband officially, so we have decided that we are dormant. We keep in touch if our group is needed. One of the items that we're currently working on is at Minnesota State Legislature, we have a bill to update a World War I plaque to be more inclusive. And so, as part of our committee, we are following along. We one of our members has gone to testify, to give our support to this new plaque. So we're watching that as it's going through the legislature. 
so at this point, we are informally still keeping in contact and still doing our thing, but not as a formal process anymore. Okay, well, thank you. So let's talk about your Facebook page, Minnesotans Remembered. What is it? How did it get started? What kind of things will I find if I go there? Well, my interest in the Minnesotans who served in World War I started back in 2014. I was in the Meuse-Argonne area for a week at the same time as a group of friends, including Doug Becky, who was then the curator of the Minnesota Military Museum. And each morning, our group would get together for an early breakfast. Doug would tell us what he was planning to do that day and pull out maps and describe the context and the special significance to Minnesotans. I was totally fascinated. Of course, we followed Doug on his plan for the day. And Doug Becky, he has been my mentor ever since. So along with most of the notable sites of the area, we went to the American cemeteries. And on my first visit to the Muse Argonne American Cemetery, I was struck by the beauty and calm of the cemetery. There are 15,000 Americans commemorated in that cemetery. The grave markers are perfectly aligned. It's quiet, except for the trees rusting a little bit in the wind and an occasional visitor wandering down a roll. This is on the same land that our soldiers fought valiantly. It was very chaotic at the time. And while military strategy and geography are important to understanding World War I, I was just drawn to the individual soldiers named on the crosses. And so as I stood there alone in a section, my eyes were drawn to a grave marker from a soldier from Minnesota, and then another one from Minnesota, and another one. And I wondered, does anybody from Minnesota remember the Minnesotans who were buried 4,000 miles from home? People know their uncle. They may have heard about a great uncle. Who knows or remembers their great, great uncle? I decided I would remember them. That began my missive to document something personable about each of the Minnesota soldiers. So after I started this project, now when I stand in the cemetery, I don't see a field of crosses. I see faces of soldiers from Minnesota. I hear their stories, and I know their stories are documented and will be remembered. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, as you compile these stories, what are one or two that stick out for you the most? Oh, they're all my Minnesota boys. In France, my friends over there, my local friends there tease me. I have a Minnesota boy for you, they tell me. (laughs) (laughs) So you've adopted them all. About 466 so far. But there are some that just tug at my heart. For instance, Warren Gamel, who was a sergeant first class and a classmate of his at Hamlin University, Glenn Donaldson, they were part of a group that volunteered together to be an ambulance unit. And as an ambulance unit, they did get split up and put wherever they needed to be. Warren and Glenn happened to be together in October of 1918 and were serving the second division, bringing wounded back from a fierce battle and the ambulance got hit by shell fire. Both of them won the Distinguished Service Cross, and it's one thing to have won the Distinguished Service Cross, but most of these people were just ordinary boys. Again, I'm older now, so boys is appropriate because they're my son's age. They were boys. You're absolutely right. Yes, and I feel as the mother of these men, they didn't have to go one more time to go get more wounded, but they did it because they felt they needed to. So those two are both buried at the Musargon American Cemetery. I visit those two each and every time I go to the cemetery. And then I actually was on the spot where their ambulance had been hit and commemorated their story 100 years later. That really struck something to me about being in their place at the time. And they were easy to research. And other soldiers are a little harder. 
sometimes all I can get is the basic rank name, unit, date of death. One of these soldiers is Private Clark Harris, who was with the 369th Infantry, which is part of the 93rd Division. And the policy and practice of segregation and discrimination discounted the bravery and patriotism that had been shown by the 369th. And I could not find a gold star file, a bonus file with the Minnesota Historical Society. There's no mention in Winona County in their book of the war. He is listed in the Soldiers of the Great War book under Died of Accident with a hometown of Winona. But I have nothing more personal than that, which means that I have not given up. It's just gone on my list of need to find a photo in different places for this man. And I could probably talk for another five, six hours about my Minnesota police. But, you know, Susie, it's obvious that this is a deeply personal and an emotional and a beautiful story for you. If somebody wanted to undertake a similar project, what advice would you give them? Number one, be organized. I can't tell you how many times I have gone down that same path to not find a photo and then realized, oh, yeah, I checked that before. The second thing would be to be very, very diligent. You can't give up. The photos will come eventually. You just need to keep going. And third is have as much Kleenex around you as you're going to need. Because as I read the story, especially of a gold star file that was written by their mother, where they say, my boy, oh, that tugs at my heartstring. My husband can always tell if I have been doing research on this because I have my pack of Kleenex right next to me. He says, you can stop. And I was like, no, no, I can't. (laughs) Well, Susie, first of all, thank you for coming on and telling us about this. And also, thank you for the work that you're doing. On the Doughboy MIA site, there's a little inscription that they say that no one is truly lost if they're not forgotten. And it's so true. And it's people like yourself that are really important to keeping this in America's reality. Well, thank you for letting me share the stories and having me on. I really appreciate it. Susie Adler is a member of the Minnesota World War I Centennial Committee, who's created and continues to curate a Facebook page called Minnesotans Remembered. We have links for you on the podcast notes to the Facebook page. Thank you, Susie. In education news, last week, a new issue of Understanding the Great War Education Newsletter published. It's issue number 18, Reconstruction and American Philanthropy. Now, as World War I came to an end, millions of people across Europe continued to suffer from lack of food and adequate housing. With countries struggling to transform from war to peace, international assistance was crucial to the survival of civilians in the immediate post-war period. In this issue of Understanding the Great War, they examine American humanitarian efforts and the leading philanthropists who made war relief possible. Subject headlines include A Fool for Peace, Andrew Carnegie and the Coming of the Great War. World War I and the Rockefeller Foundation. Herbert Hoover's Commission for Relief in Belgium. And one of my favorite titles, one that we've covered on the podcast in the past, a great title, The Rechickenization of France by the Daughters of the American Revolution. And lots more. We have links for you in the podcast notes for accessing and subscribing to the bi-monthly newsletter. And speaking of newsletters, it's time for Articles and Posts, where we highlight the stories you'll find in our weekly newsletter, The Dispatch. Here are some selections that we'll profile for you. Our first story headline reads, 
Eagle Scout Beautify Spot, where iconic Doughboy statue stands, a new look for Peterburg's old soldier. The road to Nicholas Riggs' Eagle Scout designation includes a stretch of South Sycamore Street in Petersburg, Virginia, known for its iconic World War I Doughboy statue. Riggs, a member of Scout Troop 900 in Prince George County, formally unveiled his Eagle Scout project last weekend, a makeover of the Doughboy site that includes landscaping, a new stone bench, and a flagpole. Our second story... Hollywood American Legion Post 43 renovation completed. Our friends at the legendary American Legion Post 43 in Los Angeles have a great reason to celebrate. They recently completed a multi-million dollar top-to-bottom renovation of their landmark clubhouse. Not the least of which is their spectacular 1920s era theater space. To kick things off right... As the first major event, they agreed to host the multi-day annual Turner Classic Movie Film Festival. And of course, the film that they picked to introduce this year's film festival was none other than Sergeant York, the classic Gary Cooper film produced in 1941. And of course, to introduce this great film, the film festival picked none other than our friend, Colonel Gerald York, grandson of Sergeant Alvin York, and his uncle, Andrew Jackson York, as keynote speakers. Our next story, it headlines with Coast Guard to award Purple Heart to USS Tampa crew killed during World War I. Now, we told the story of the sinking of the USS San Diego earlier in this episode and how the loss of life, though tragic, was only six sailors. It was the USS Tampa that sank on September 26, 1918 that was the worst U.S. military ship sinking. In an article linked to in the Dispatch this week, you can read the story of Anna Bonaparte, who was four years old when her father, James Wilkie, died aboard the USS Tampa. Though she didn't have many memories of her father, she constantly spoke about him and his service in the Coast Guard to her son, Wallace. Well, next month, Bonaparte, a former Army captain, is going to travel from his home in Charleston, South Carolina to Washington, D.C., there to receive a Purple Heart in honor of his grandfather as a part of an initiative to recognize the 115 service members who died more than 100 years ago aboard the ship. And our last story feature for this week, Virginia students bring World War I sheet music back to life. The University of Virginia was in the national spotlight this month for becoming the national champions of the NCAA basketball tournament. And we're thrilled for them. But we're also thrilled to find that they have a special World War I-related project underway at their campus. As a part of a collaborative project called Resounding the Archives between University of Virginia, Virginia Tech, and George Mason University, students from each of the schools researched and analyzed World War I songs from the UAV archives, and George Mason students recorded studio versions of them. Access all these amazing stories and more through the links that you'll find in our weekly dispatch newsletter. It's our short and easy guide to lots of World War I news and information. Subscribe to this wonderful free weekly guide at www.cc.org forward slash subscribe, all lowercase, or follow the link in the podcast notes. And that wraps up episode number 119 of the award-winning World War I Centennial News Podcast. Thank you for listening. 
We want to thank our great guests, talented crew, and supporters, including Mike Schuster, curator for the Great War Project blog, James Carl Nelson, author of The Polar Bear Expedition, The Heroes of America's Forgotten Invasion of Russia, Dr. Edward Lengel, historian, author, and lecturer, Alain Dupuis, the president of the Federation of French War Veterans, U.S. Navy History and Heritage Command Marine Archaeologist Dr. Alexis Katsambas. Minnesota World War I Centennial Committee member and Facebook group curator Susie Adler. Thanks to Mac Nelson and Tim Crow, our interview editing team. Katz Laszlo, the line producer for the show. Dave Kramer and J.L. Michaud for research and script support. And I'm Theo Mayer, your producer and host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I, including this podcast. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago to today's educators, their classrooms, and to the public. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across our country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, as well as our other sponsors, the Starr Foundation, the Diana Davis Spencer Foundation, and the Richard Lounsbury Foundation. The podcast and a full transcript of the show can be found on our website at www.cc.org. You'll find World War I Centennial News in all the places that you get your podcasts, even on YouTube, or by asking Siri or using your smart speaker by saying, play, WW1 Centennial News Podcast. The podcast Twitter handle is at the WW1 Podcast. The Commission Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1Centennial. Thank you again for joining us. And don't forget, keep the story alive for America by helping us build the memorial. Just text the letters WWI or WW1 to the phone number 9199. Thank you for listening. So long.